Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Hopefully by now you've tuned in to Let Us Pray, the four-part documentary series about abuse within independent fundamental Baptist churches. It premiered on Investigation Discovery. It's streaming right now on Max, formerly known as HBO Max. And one of the featured people in it was April, who I'm interviewing today. Uh, You're going to hear our conversation about her experience at Faith Baptist Church in Wildemar. We talk a little bit about the documentary. This was recorded before either of us had seen it. So we get to talk about what our biggest fears and biggest hopes for the series were. And I just hope you really enjoy this conversation. April's become a good friend, and I'm really excited to share a bit of her story with you here on the Preacher Boys podcast. Enjoy the episode. I feel like we've already done an interview <laughs> because we've talked a ton um, and have met in person a couple times in various states <laughs> for something everybody knows about now for this documentary. Um, so I feel like I've interviewed you before. So this is going to be a little weird going back to the very beginning and coming through this story in a show format. But before we um, kind of dive into everything that's happening now, Take me back to the very beginning of your story and the very first time that you were introduced to the Independent Baptist Movement, Faith Baptist Wildemar, like that whole interesting world. Okay. Um, I actually, it would have been before I was born. So um, my mom and dad had just moved to Southern California um, in the Wildemar area, but um, they had just moved there. My dad was in training out of state for his job. And my mom found out she was expecting me. So new state, um, just found out she was expecting. So didn't really know anybody, just a very in-between transitional state in Mm -hmm. her life. Um, And somebody from Faith Baptist Church um, knocked on her door and invited her to ride the bus um, to church. Um, My mom didn't ride the bus that day, but she did go with a um, her neighbor, I believe, to church and visited. And so that was um, the very first introduction to Faith Baptist Church for my family. Um, when my dad got back from his training, um, my mom said, hey, you should check this out. 
um, you know, I just went, I just visited. I think you would enjoy it too. My mom had no religious background at all. So this was very new for her. Um, my dad was born and raised Catholic, but had left the church, um, just saw a lot of things he didn't agree with and had was pretty recently out of the Catholic church. So my dad and mom went to church and the rest is history. So I was basically born at the church. So, yeah. And one of the things that I think is interesting, and it's one of the reasons that I always ask this question is like, people tend to assume that people that speak out about the church, like have this agenda against it or hated it, or they went for like a couple of days and had a weird experience. And so they just won't let it go. And most of the people I talked to were like you and I born and raised it. We're like, that's all we knew. Um, so like all of our positive and negative experiences were in it. But then even beyond that, I think what's really interesting with your story is that your mom was really concerned about abuse. She had an abusive background. And so that was one of her hesitancies going to a church. And then you have the church essentially saying, you know, hey, like, we're going to take care of you. Like, this is a safe spot. Like, it was kind of this like lighthouse to say, like, you know, we got you. This is like a home away from home. And to have all of that built on that foundation kind of makes everything else a little bit more diabolical later on. Absolutely. One of my mom, because of her background growing up, she really wanted to do, and she, she shared this with me, wanted to do things right. She wanted to make sure her children were in a safe place that protected them. And so that they did not have to experience what she grew up with. Mm-hmm. My dad left an environment that he felt was controlling and, um, you know, there was sketchy things going on in the background. So he did not want to repeat that with his family. And ironically, they both walked into an environment that did all of that. And, um, but they, they told them one of my first things, my dad, he, he told Bruce Goddard, you know, I don't call anybody by a title. You know, this isn't, I don't, I'm not going to walk into that environment where the, the person, um, you know, the pat whatever the right. pastor, the priest is elevated, um, above the people. And Bruce Goddard told them, Oh no, that's not here. You can call me whatever right. uh, you want. And which is funny because I don't know later on if my dad ever called him anything but pastor or preacher. Um, And so it was that presenting of an environment that was very safe and not like what you came from. Like we can offer you the safety you want. Mm -hmm. Our church isn't going to be like the Catholic church. We're a good place, a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. We have less rules than the Catholic church and we're far safer. Yeah, definitely. Definitely true. Um, So early memories within the church, like talk to me about kind of your personality growing up and like being in that environment, because I know for me, like I loved it. Like growing up was like, you know, even now it's confusing because you look back at those memories and you're like, I thought that was awesome. And like, I remember riding my bike around the church and like all of these things Uh, for you growing up, was it anything you questioned early on? Or was it kind of just like, this is life. I'm doing my thing. This is where I'm at. It was very much, it was my life. So we were there. (laughs) Once I hit school age, I was at the church seven days a week. So I, some people, their personality naturally might rub the wrong way in IFB. I am a, by nature, a rule follower. I like 
things in order. I like to know what is expected of me. So I was kind of the round peg and a round hole at, in the IFE. I fit into that environment, I think. Um, so it didn't bother me as a young kid, like the rules and stuff. It just, it was a lot of security. I enjoyed it. I was there all the time. Um, all my friends were at church. Anybody I knew was in the church. So I went to grade school there. Every activity we did was there. We spent every holiday there. Um, it felt like my family. Um, I was definitely closer to people in the church than I was to family um, outside of the church. So it definitely felt just like an extension of my home. It was my second home, basically. Growing up, like you were hanging out with a bunch of kids at church, like you didn't have anybody outside of that, but you were also super close to the pastor's kids. Like, Mm -hmm. so did you, I mean, it's safe to say you knew the Goddard's like super, super well. Yeah, we grew up um, at the time I was growing up. Our school was very small. I think there was only maybe four or five kids in my kindergarten class. Um, And so it's a very small environment. Your friend pool is very limited. Um, And so I I would grow up with the um, pastor's daughter and their family and the principal, they had their children. And that was my main friend group. So um, the only place I ever remember really spending the night being allowed to spend the night was at the pastor's house. Um, Mm. My parents, you know, trusted that environment or the principal, their children's house, I would be able to spend the night there, you know, so birthday parties, um, just normal, like friends, school group activities where you would hang out, go swimming at their house that was spent mostly with those people. Hmm. So yeah, I did grow up very, just very connected. We vacationed with them. We went on a vacation probably almost every year or every couple of years with their family would go camping go up the coast. Um, We spent a lot of very intimate time together with our families all together. What was Bruce like at that point? I mean, obviously I'm sure there's a colorful answer you could give now, but I mean, at that time period, because he comes off from the pulpit, like a very specific kind of way, which is very like aggressive and like kind of old school, like domineering from the stage. Was that his personality kind of off the platform, like in kind of the personal interactions? Like as a kid, you know, this is my friend's dad on top of being the pastor, which is, there was this distance. I don't have memories like that. I remember him being very involved with his family. Um, First time I ever had crepes, he would do that on um, when he'd always make breakfast for the, the kids, I guess. But when I was there and so it just, it seemed like a very normal, um, family environment, um, obviously very religious, um, but not like, I don't, I can't say I was scared of him in that aspect. Like, again, it was a friend's dad. There was that, you know, I wasn't buddy, buddy by any means, but I was not scared. He was very like, seemed very hands-on with the family, you know, Um, would try to go out of his way to do fun things with the kids and stuff. So for me, it was fun. I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed hanging out at their house and being with everybody. It just seemed like a fun place to be, honestly. Um, You know, I've asked this question a variety of ways to people, like what was the first red flag you've noticed? And then I realized that 
typically by the time you notice a red flag, you've already passed six or seven. So I'm going to change the question a little bit and say, now looking back at your story, when's the first time that you or someone close to you should have noticed that things weren't heading in a positive direction? Hopefully I answer this. I've thought about it and hopefully I answer it clearly. You talk about like what it's like being at the house with somebody. And oftentimes in these environments, it seemed like you would get two very different personalities. Um, So I can think back to things where, like you said, those red flags you pass and things that would hurt me as a child. And I just did not know how to process it. I remember one time having spent the night at the Goddard's house where, you know, you sit around the table and you're eating and you just feel like, oh, this is, this is like my home. This is not Mm -hmm. much different. And the next Sunday, um, I was sitting in church Sunday night, so I might have been nine or ten. And the pastor would get got up behind the pulpit in front of everybody and just talked about how much all the that April Het girl she eats and eats and eats. Man, you can't stop her from eating. And it was just this really mean statement that I was mortified. Like I cannot believe he said that. I didn't think anything was wrong mm. here. And then in front of everybody, he is just tearing me down. And that is something I carried for years, like being, you know, just like, man, I don't like, I thought I was okay here. And then this whiplash of having something very different. And there are these, those aspects constantly woven through my memories of being like in a very, what I thought was safe and good environment. And then just kind of having this whiplash of something totally different come out of it. And like, you say red flags. One of my very early memories, um, we had, uh, we were known as the church in the tent. So um, from the time I could, my earliest memory, we were in a red tent and then mm-hmm. we moved properties and we were in another tent. We had a, I don't even know who the speaker was, but it was a missionary had come to um, the church and I wanted to be a missionary so bad. Like you only have so many, so many heroes that yeah. are allowed in the church and I wanted to be a missionary. And you would go up and get your little Bible signed by the missionary after church. And I remember going up and he asked me, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And again, I was probably like seven or eight years old. And I said, I want to be a missionary. He's like, well, you better pray that you find a good husband. And I'm just kind of thinking, I don't really understand what you're saying. He's like, because you won't be able to be a missionary because you're a woman. You need to find a husband and follow him into the mission field. And so there's these red flags of, you know, your place as a woman. And that was from the time I was little, um, knowing that you're not secure in your place either. Like if things might be okay, or you might be being made from made fun of from the pulpit. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be the best kid there and never cause a problem. And the pastor might just make fun of you and nobody would stick up for you. The whole church would laugh and they would say, Oh, he just has, that's his sense of humor. Like it always would default to protecting the pastor. And then another memory later, I would believe this was before my situation happened as a teenager, but there was another pastor who had been the youth pastor at the church. Um, His name is Carl Hammonds. And um, there was abuse that happened um, at his church. And, um, And the whole campaign, I remember this as a young person sitting in the church listening that you know, they're railroading him. These girls Mm. were out to get him. And even at, again, a very young age, feeling like something is not adding up here. And so those are some memories, like you knew as a girl, as a female, 
where your place was in the church. You also know that at a moment, the pastor had that power to manipulate a narrative and paint you in a certain light. And you also knew how abuse victims were going to be treated. And those are things I knew before I even knew what the word abuse was. Those were things that were ingrained as a child growing up in the environment. One of the things when I get pushback from people who are still in IFB circles, and I see the people that they're connected to. So I know they're hearing the same things that I used to hear. And I know that they have the same guest speakers. But a lot of times, like you said, which I think is great, is that you knew your place in the church. You knew that the pastor could control the group against you. You knew that if you came forward, these things would be said. And I think a lot of times, like people try to say, oh, that's how you felt. That's not how it really was. Or if you did do this, it wouldn't be like that. But like people got to recognize, like it's, it's not just implicitly said, like a lot of times this stuff is explicitly said. And I remember sitting in sermons where, I mean, David Gibbs would get up and talk about cases, you know, or um, I remember when the, when the 2020 documentary came out about the IFB, um, this is probably 2010 or 11. And I remember Gibbs coming up and saying like, you know, this is a, um, this is a work of Satan. Like Satan's full of lies. Like you don't even need to watch it. It's so full of lies, you know, like, and it's, it's like, no, they actually say this stuff. And it does like, yes, at that point, it's like, it might be, you know, quote unquote, little jokes made about, oh, something you maybe got into trouble while hanging out with your friend at their house. But then it's like later on when there's something serious that you need to come forward about all of that's replaying in your mind. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I think that lays a really good kind of framework for what you're thinking at that point. Yeah, And you know, they would, the people they platformed all of that, I call it kind of like that background noise, but you're picking up on it. And, you know, I remember when everything, one of, I don't know, there was something, several things that happened with Jack Kyle's when I was younger and I don't really, I was too little to know exactly what was going on, but we had our Jack Kyle's buttons as kids. So I don't know what's going on, but I know we're supporting this person mm-hmm. who's the devil's against. I knew that something had happened with Dave Piles. I didn't know what at that time, right. but I knew that Dave Piles visited our church and was platformed in our church. And all of that is that background noise that is just, it settles in the back of your head where you're, you're logging it in and um, it definitely builds a narrative in your mind on how, how things are supposed to be in, in this environment. You kind of alluded to obviously things that are more serious happening later on. So take me into kind of like junior high, high school period of time in the church and um, just talk to me a little bit about that period and like when, things really started shifting in a way where it's like, it's undeniable that something is wrong here. I followed every rule. I don't think I ever got in trouble ever. I was very much a rule follower. Um, Definitely a quirky kid. I just didn't really fit in. I, I probably would have in any other environment would have been the nerdy kid. Um, uh, And so I see myself now as a very vulnerable. I didn't know where to fit in. I didn't know who to hang out with. I wasn't, I didn't sing. I didn't play the piano. <laughs> so I didn't have That's a two strikes. <laughs> I know I was, I was in trouble. Can you type? So, can you type? If you can type, you can, we can save this. It's questionable. <laughs> I know. 
right before I got into junior high. So junior high at Faith Baptist started in seventh grade. So right before um, we, they announced that we had gotten a new youth pastor, um, the old youth pastor had, um, two, the last two youth pastors had just disappeared. We found out why more later. Um, so we were, they, the church was up without a youth pastor for a while. And then they announced um, this former Faith Baptist Church Academy graduate was coming back to be the youth pastor. And my family was, I wouldn't say very close to the Monteros, um, but my dad was a youth worker at some point. So he had given rides to Victor Montero Hmm. and had, you know, there was connection there just through church relationships where you're always bumping into each other. So everybody, I felt like that's kind of the, everybody was excited that this alumni of Faith Baptist Church was coming back to be the youth pastor. And I remember that. I remember when they announced him coming back in. So when I stepped into seventh grade, I was the first, I believe, class that he had fully as the youth pastor. Like he was kind of, you know, um, shadowing another person and then he became the youth pastor. So I was there right at the very beginning of his beginnings of working at the church. So he was young. He was fun. Um, I, in the very beginning, I didn't, I just kind of kept myself to myself. I was just, I was always in my, had my nose in a book and I just didn't really interact. And so he would go out of his way to be like, Hey, why don't you come, you know, like, why don't you play volleyball with us? Why don't you come out? You know, trying to, at that time, I thought trying to break me out of my shell. And so, um, just ended up getting, you know, he was just fun. I think that has been said before, but he was a lot of fun. He was a very involved youth pastor. And in this environment, everybody's so stuffy. Everybody's so uptight about everything. Um, Oh, everything's, everything's a big deal. And here he just, he could let loose. Um, And not long after, probably around eighth grade, I was asked to start um, babysitting for his family. So I babysat for him until I graduated. So those layers to the relationships just started connect, you know, piling up. So I would babysit. Um, my parents got close to their family. I ended up, um, working for his mother-in-law. Um, I would iron for them. It was my way to make a little extra money. And it just, we became all together, very close as a family. And so it wasn't unusual for me to spend a lot of time, whether it was at their house because I was babysitting or helping with the family. I would go on vacations with them to help with the kids or at um, his in-laws house, you know, working there or just being there. And again, the layers, they were also, he was a teacher at the school. He was, we went teen soul winning with them. We were at church on Sunday. I went Saturday soul winning with he did, he led the Saturday morning. So I was just, there was a lot of interaction. So I think from the outside, it didn't seem odd that I was with this person a lot. And then, um, as it started, you know, it was just friendly stuff. He would write me notes like, Hey, I saw you. I'm glad you're here. And then, you know, he would draw pictures. He drew a lot of pictures and he would make me cartoons. And I'm like, Oh, this is funny. And then it turned into little gifts, you know, like, Hey, I, I saw this. I thought of you. Um, then it was a nickname, you know, like, oh, you know, here's your nickname. And for somebody who was starving for a place to fit in, who did not feel like I fit anywhere, it was like, oh, this is a place that somebody accepts me. And then I feel like I fit in here. And um, it just, 
escalated from there. And then, you know, it was like the punch on the shoulder, you know, like mm. April or nickname, you know, punch you on the shoulder or like then it became kind of roughhousing and stuff. And it just slowly escalated from there. And the the mind, the thing that messes with your mind the most is that these are things are happening in front of his wife. So then, and when there was no reaction, then you assume like, okay, like I know this feels odd to me because we're not supposed to touch boys. And I've never had an adult man interact with me like this, but it's right here in front of the wife. Like, and she doesn't seem to mind. She'll even joke like, oh, that's just how my husband is. And so it must be normal. Or these things would happen at teen activities and nobody would say anything, or he would do it to other teenagers and nobody would say anything. So even though it felt weird to me, nobody else seemed bothered by it. So I just took it as it was. And then by ninth grade, it um, it escalated. It kept everything just, I think he would continue to test the water and it would escalate, escalate. It just kept on escalating, you know, to the point where there was very seriously inappropriate stuff going on. Stuff so this is like a two, I mean, almost three year I would think it was this. it started in seventh grade and by ninth grade it was full-blown abuse. Gotcha. Um and that continued until I was in twelfth grade. And um at that time I didn't have an email. We didn't cell phones were still pretty new things. So I didn't have those that aspect. Um but you know, he would, you know, hey, could you help me in my office? And there would be abuse in there and and again, the thing, I was such a rule follower um, that I, it's not that I thought it was right. I just could not put two things that the person who's in charge would break the rules. Like okay. this is the rules are here for a reason. And we were told that over and over. And I can, I, and it was just a constant gaslighting messing with your mind i remember one time i had been folding tracks in his office and um then a situation took place in his office and then we went to church like right afterwards teen church and he was up in the pulpit he opened his bible and i remember it vividly like made, never broke eye contact and just just stared me down and talked about purity how yeah a good man wants a pure woman and that somebody who you know, was impure, nobody would want. And he would just, and never broke eye contact. And I'm, I'm trying to put like, how could what have happened in your office just minutes before on church property, how could you stand up in the pulpit and say those things? Right. And, um, but he did. And that was, he was, again, there was this aspect to him that he could be so nice, but then he could turn around and be viciously mean. And, um, and he would say things. Um, that was where I first heard about, um, Kathy, because he would tell me like, you know, there was this person in the church and there was a situation with a youth pastor and her entire family had to, or her family got in trouble and um, the pastors had to leave and the youth pastor had to leave Faith Baptist and his wife left him. And I don't even think he gets to see his kids anymore. And here I'm with these kids every day that I really, really care about. He's like, I could lose my kids if you ever say anything. Um, and so I was put in a position or he's like your dad. Um, uh, my dad was very involved in the church. Um, your dad could lose his 
you know, his position, your family could be kicked out. Your, your siblings won't be allowed to go to a Christian school. And so here I am in 10th grade, 11th grade, carrying the weight of like, I need to protect in my mind, protect his family. I need to protect my family. And often people say, well, if something happened to my kid, they would come and tell me like, and people are confused because I have a really wonderful relationship with my parents. I talk to my dad every single week. I have a great relationship. I didn't fit your, I don't know if you say cliche, but what those things that people look for, like I wasn't an at-risk youth. I had both parents in my home, a very stable environment, like a very rebellious and slamming the door when you got home and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't, I wasn't in trouble at school. I wasn't in trouble at home. And so I just didn't hit the, the, those markers that people often look for. But at the same time, I felt like it was my response. I had to protect my family. So that's why I didn't tell my family among probably other things, because I also thought, well, what will happen to me in the church? I don't want to leave. I don't want to get kicked out of school. But I also felt like I had to protect my siblings. I had to protect his family, his children. And so I just, I never came forward for that. So that continued all the way through um, um, school. I ended up leaving for Hiles Anderson and I just tried to make a, a clean break as possible. Like by that time I had gotten a cell phone and he would text me and I ended up just, I just wanted to be done, be done with everything. It's another element too, where like you mentioned, like you're looking at other people when things are done in front of others that should have been enough to prompt a conversation. It's like, if they're not doing anything, you're measuring stick for right and wrong. Is that environment, you know? And I I think that gets missed too, is like, I don't think, I mean, I don't know if you felt this way, but like, I certainly never would have ever in any circumstance thought to circumvent the church authority to go to law. Like in my mind, it was, okay, I'll go to my youth pastor if there's an issue. And then if they can't deal with it, then I'll go to pastor. And if pastor says we're not doing anything or he shuts it down, like for me, it was like law enforcement wasn't even part of that chain, you know, in that realm. That background noise of things stay in the church. We keep things here. Um, If you have a problem, you know, they tell you, you have your cabinet of counselors and the pastor better be in there. The youth pastor, everything every person they ever put in front of you to talk to was within the church. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time we were at a teen activity and um, I actually think it was at youth conference. It was, it was at youth conference in Hammond. We came out here and they would have squirt guns and we would just be crazy, I guess. Um, And Victor was being, you know, wrestling and just, you know, with the girls and me in particular was kind of messing with us, squirting with squirt guns and wrestling with us. And I was pulled aside by one of the lady workers and just told, you know, you're being very inappropriate with him. You aren't behaving. You're, you're not, you know, somebody could see you and think something was, you know, you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. And so in the situation where the adult was doing something, it was the child slash woman, female who took the, it wasn't. Yeah the discipline wasn't directed at Victor. It was directed at the teenager um, who honestly in the environment I grew up in where there was no sex ed, there was no talk about anything. Like it was actively discouraged. 
I had no comprehension of what they were even talking about when somebody, you know, somebody might think something. I didn't know what they were talking about. Right. And, um, but it was directed at me and the girls and not at the person who it should have been. And so again, that was like, what do you do then if you already know that the youth pastor who you should go to is the one causing the harm that people you might go to like a youth worker or something are protecting him or you know, standing by him. And so you just, you're kind of cut off from any avenue of support that you might go to. You already know you can't go to. Obviously there was two sides of Victor, you know, many sides of Victor because he had lots of different people he was manipulating over this time period. For you, was there, you know, there were times that he would do things that were obviously cruel, you know, and I know he leveraged past stories and how they were dealt with to, you know, I think Rachel talked about that in her episode. Like he mentioned, like, you know, that nothing's going to happen because in the past, nothing happened when this went down. Like he was obviously, he obviously had a plan in how to structure these things. Um, But on the flip side too, a lot of love bombing, a lot of notes and kindness and things that were probably caused very conflicting emotions inside you. Did you feel at any point like, oh, I also need to protect him because like, he's going to lose everything. Like I could, you know, because you're getting all this messaging, were you going, oh, I don't want to destroy his life, even though he was at the present time really trying to destroy yours? Oh, a lot. He would use like, you know, I'm just really stressed at work, you know, and again, you're a kid and you think, oh, wow, this, this adult's really right. trusting me. <laughs> I, I must be very mature. I must be this. Yeah, but he would put that out to be like, you know, I really appreciate you not talking to anybody about this. You know, you're really helping me going through this hard time. And um, I ended up being between him and his wife. His wife obviously saw things that were going on. And I don't know how she did or did not handle that. I won't go into that too much. But I had one adult on this side saying, you know, I really appreciate you're in my house. Like, you know, Mm. the wife, you know, you're really helpful. And, and she would tell me things about her marriage. And then I have the adult on the other side, and he's telling me things about their marriage. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm, I'm being a help to both of them. I need to help them protect them, um, protect their marriage because, you know, and for him, not her, but he would tell me that like, you are helping my marriage, you know, by keeping, by not saying stuff like I could lose my marriage, I could lose my kids. And that would be the worst thing. And so, yeah, I felt like I was protecting him. I felt like I was protecting their marriage. I had a lot, I carried a lot of. What a weight. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot. So obviously you left. And, you know, you go to Hiles Anderson, which is, I mean, <laughs> another step in an interesting direction. Um, we could talk about that, but I'm, I'm curious to know, like, you did have that clean break and you had years span between all of that and him finally being brought down. Um, we can dive into Hiles Anderson if you want to. I, I don't know if there's more interesting anecdotes about that um or if you just want to go ahead and skip to you know getting in touch with rachel um do you do you think there's anything in Hiles anderson worth i know there's a lot we could talk about 
but do you think it's relevant or do you think it's something we should? No, I mean, it's more of just the same, same old stories that probably everybody funny, has. Funny um, anecdotes of that. I, um, I definitely think, you know, Hiles Anderson will just the environment altogether. Like I met my husband there and uh, does not set you up in any means for coming out as a victim. Like if anything, it just reestablishes those, those gender roles, rules, um, the roles you have as a person in the church to protect the church, you know, all that stuff is just, I feel like it's just an indoctrination Four years of indoctrination, very just solidifies it. But um, I will say like, right. I um, left, graduated Hiles Anderson. Um, I had met my husband. We were married. I I graduated a semester early just so I could get married. Got to get married really, really quickly. And I got married at Faith Baptist Church. Um, And so, you know, I came back and stepped in. Did he have any idea about any of this? Your husband at the time? No, I never told anybody about that. So um, we had gotten married and I believe it was our first summer married here, um, living in my house and everything, newly married wife. And um, uh, somebody from Faith Baptist had contacted me and asked if we they could use our house for the youth conference teens to come, you know, have a Bible study or something and use our backyard. And I said, yeah. So Victor obviously was still the youth pastor at that time. So he came out and I hadn't had a lot of contact with them. Um, And so he came and, you know, it's like, oh, hey, saying hi to everything, to everybody and just, you know, being all together. And I remember at some point um, I was, I forget, but I was sitting on a couch and Victor came and was talking to me or something. And my husband, we're newly married, pulls me aside and says, hey, I I feel like you're being really inappropriate with Victor. And I feel like that is the first person in my life that ever said, Hey, this doesn't feel, this isn't right. Like from the outside, this something looks off here. And I, I just had no gauge of proper relationships look like outside the church. I just, my world was the church. I didn't know how people interacted with people normally. Mm-hmm. And I was just mortified. I thought, oh man, I, I'm not being a good example to these teenagers, but that was the first time somebody pointed out and it wasn't even just directed at me. He's like, I feel like Victor's being inappropriate and like, what's going on here. And that was the first time anybody had ever said like, something doesn't seem right. And that was at that point, I was like, you know, I'm just, I, I'm done completely. Um, so anyways, we were here, um, uh, we were here for Jack Scott. Yay. Um, and honestly, like in a weird world, um, like Jack Scott kind of began, I think for a lot of us, he was mm-hmm. somebody who was doing something different. And he honestly probably, I don't want to give him any credit. He doesn't deserve credit, but like began for me, I, some people call it deconstruction, but for me, it was just questioning things, looking at things from a different perspective. And that was the first time I think really looking at faith Baptist critically, it just seemed very backwards to me. There was things like this that I wasn't understanding. Jack Scott was pushing the rules. You know, he was being edgy and you thought, Oh, this, this guy's going to make a difference. This guy yeah. is how IFB should be. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oops. Um, not, not the best, but anyway, so we were there, we were there when they would 
pack the auditorium completely full. We would wait in that line for an hour to meet Jack Scott, you know, just mm-hmm. so he could kiss our baby or whatever. Um, and so we were there um, also when it all went down and I was expecting my second child. And this is for me kind of this pivotal moment. Um, so we were, we were doing things a little different. You know, my parents didn't quite understand, you know, I was saying really wild stuff like, Hey, you know, maybe King James Bible isn't the only Bible and just blowing everybody's mind. Um, and so I was expecting my second child. I was at home visiting my family in California. So this, I live in Hammond, Indiana. I was at home visiting my family in California and my best friend calls me and is just bawling her eyes out and says, did you hear what happened with Jack Scott? And I was like, nope. And that's when it all went down. And that for anybody who is here at that time was the most bizarre and absolutely insane time. Um, I know my, I was already, I had, I was expecting my emotions were already probably running a little high. It was, you would walk to church and there'd be um, journalists and photographers just taking pictures. And I really believe I had pushed everything way, way down. What happened at Faith Baptist Church, I thought it was a one-time thing. It happened to me. It was my fault, like, or whatever. I had just pushed it so far down. My focus was my family, my kids. I was living my best life in Hammond, Indiana, and I had just pushed it way down. And everything that happened with Jack Scott brought it right Mm -hmm. to the front. And I say that because I sat in the pews and I just, I'm just watched everybody and everybody ran to Jack Scott. I heard the absolute worst things said about this teenage girl. Like the, they just, just would say horrible things about her. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I ever came forward, Mm. like, this is what happened to me. If I ever came forward, this is what would happen to me. I had um, people that I would call friends, you know, like that I felt like I trusted and agreed with it called me and asked me, like, hey, could you write a letter for Jack Scott, like, uh, that a lot of people wrote letters for Jack Scott. And I thought, I cannot believe this. Like this man did this to a child and you're asking me to write a letter for him. It was, and then you'd be sitting there listening to people like Eddie Lapina and you would hear one story from Eddie Lapina from the pulpit. And then behind the scenes, you're like, that's not adding up. Like if he wasn't really sick, was he, you know, and all these, so you're hearing the lies, you're hearing all that stuff. And it was a very, hard time. And that's when like, I started having like panic attacks. I, and I would go to my doctor and she'd be like, Oh, it's because you're pregnant. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on with me right now because I wasn't able to exactly connect the, what had happened to me in the past with what was happening. So we stayed at first Baptist church for about a year longer. We stayed, John Wilkerson was there. Um, so maybe almost two years. Um, and at some point I was just, I was miserable. I would cry every single day going to church. I, I was absolutely miserable. I had found out I was expecting a daughter. I didn't want my daughter at the church. We actually stopped putting our kids in nursery around that time too. The two that I had, Mm -hmm. I, everything, I was just like, nothing feels right there. Um, um, and then I found out I was expecting my daughter and I'm like, I don't want what happened to my, to me, what happened to this girl? Like, I can't trust this place. And we actually went to John Wilkerson to talk to him. And we said, we need, where are these changes that were promised? Where yeah. are the things that are going to make First Baptist Church different? And he told me, 
and my husband, he said, give me 10 years. And, and we saw other things. My husband was in the Spanish department. He grew up with lots of stuff. My husband grew up at First Baptist Church and City Baptist. So he was bringing his experiences, things we had also seen from other people in the church. And so we went to him and we're like, these things need to change. Like what, when are we going to see these big changes? And he said, give me 10 years. So we went home and I said, in 10 years, we're going to have a teenager. Literally, if we had waited 10 years, that would have been, that would be almost now. And I said, I'm not willing to bet our child's future on a maybe like this might happen in 10 years. So we left the church around that time. At that same time too, we, we moved to a different church and um, we were just kind of trying to find our way out of IFB, I think. Um, and I reconnected with Rachel at the same time. I was going through a lot of health issues. Like I was just going to doctor, doctor, doctor. And so I had reconnected with Rachel. We were getting together. I'd bring my kids. She'd bring the kids she nannied. And we'd meet up at the um, library. And we were talking. Um, I was going to the doctor. And around that time, I, I told the doctor, I said, I think something's wrong with me. I said, I either... <laughs> something has to be wrong with me. Like, this is not normal. And she's like, we've done all the tests and everything. She's like, I think you need to see a psychologist. And she's like, it's in your head. And so all these things, it was just kind of this perfect storm of all these things coming together. And um, I ended up, and stop me if I'm talking too much, but um, around that time. You're giving a perfect, amazing timeline. So I'm not going to interrupt you. It's not coming off rambly whatsoever. So I'm, I'm being quiet because I'm listening. (laughs) Okay. Um, So around that time, I, um, so this is all kind of consecutively happening. So this was in November. Um, I had a friend that I had grown up with at Faith Baptist Church um, come to my house. And I was, I describe it as feeling like I was a a Coke bottle that you shake really hard, you know, and I was just that lid. I just needed the right person to turn the lid. And I would have just, I needed the right person that I could just talk to and let it all out. I was so just ready to like, I don't, I didn't know what was going to come first, a mental breakdown or me saying something. I was just on that edge of just not mentally not being okay. So I had a friend come over and we were talking our kids, you know, were there or whatever. And she had said something. She had just gone home to visit her family in California. She said, you know, it's really odd. You know, she's like, it's kind of hard because, you know, Victor Montero, he doesn't seem like the same youth pastor that we had growing up. It just seems odd. She's like, I feel like, she's like, do you know anything that ever happened? She's like, it. he was at the church and now he's been moved to the smaller church. Like, she's like, and we all know that nobody gets moved unless something happens. Um, like it just doesn't add up. And that was the, one of the very first people, I would say probably the first person I ever told what happened. I said, well, I wouldn't be surprised if something had happened because something had happened to me. And she just looked at me and she's like, like something sexual. And I said, yes. And then she's like, okay. And I didn't really talk to her about it, but she said, does anybody know about this? And I said, no. And she's like, you need to tell your dad. And my dad was a, the chairman of the deacon board. Um, and I said, okay. And so, which was probably one of the hardest phone calls I've ever made in my life. And I called my dad and I said, hey, I just need to tell you something. And I told him and my dad uh, just kind of went into, he was law enforcement um, 
before he retired. And I, he just kind of went into the mode, like just, which I'm glad it helped me that he didn't get super emotional or anything. He just asked me questions. Did this happen? How far did it go? Go, you know, and just went down the list. And he said, um, you know, and then we were kind of looking at statute of limitations and now it's been almost 15 years past. And I was outside the statute of limitations and he's like, well, you know, preacher needs to know pastor Goddard needs to go. And I remember telling my dad, I said, you can tell him. Um, but I don't know if he'll ever, he'll do anything about it. And my dad's like, no, pastor, pastor will do something about this. And, and I said, no, because there was another person at the church and this happened to them. And my dad was like, who? And I told him, I said, Kathy. And I said, Vic, and nothing was done about that. Like the, the um, Paul Fox was just shipped out. But my dad was like, no, you know, pastor preacher will do something. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you mind if I talk to him or would you like to talk to him? I said, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And at that point, one of my biggest fears was not being believed. And I told my dad that I said, I don't know if he'll believe me. And that would kill me. I said, so you're more than welcome to tell him and then um, have him call me and I will talk to him if he calls me. And so that was in November. Never heard anything from Bruce Goddard ever. And my dad talked to him. And then I ended up, um, you know, like I said, I was with Rachel, I was going to a therapist. And at that time, now we're into like January of the following year, I was at the gym, because whenever you're not feeling good, people are like, go exercise. I'm like, I'll do anything. So I'm at the gym with a friend. And I ended up, for whatever reason, just telling her everything. I don't even know why. But this, if you knew this friend, you would know, because she could get you to tell, tell her anything. She, that's her, that's how she is. So she was friends, a mutual with Rachel. And I know this has been told in Rachel's, but she called Rachel and told Rachel, Hey, you need to call April. And Rachel, we ended up meeting at my house and Rachel's kind of like, Hey, you know, I just remember it. We're sitting, Rachel has this face, like she's seen a ghost. I'm like bawling and I'm telling her what's going on. And she's like, well, would you mind if I told, um, his wife or, you know, like talk to her. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And again, if she wants to call me, she can. Um, so she talked to her and then, um, the wife called me. And again, these are things that are, you look back and anyways, 
she called me and she said, Hey, April, um, I just got a call and I was talking to Rachel and I said, yeah, I believe this was like on a Saturday. And she told me, she's like, was it this incident? And was it this incident? And I was just blindsided. I'm like, she like right off the bat named two things. Like, was it when this happened? And was it when this happened? And it's like, you knew about this. Like in my mind, like I thought maybe they didn't see something. Maybe when I would try to process this as an adult, as a parent with children, I would think back and just assume that maybe they didn't understand what was going on or they didn't really see. And immediately she named off two things that she had seen. And ironically, those were the two things that I got um, uh, the that were brought to the trial. And I just, that, that was like the, the beginning of where I just, like my devastation, <laughs> where I just kind of like, just slowly like, fell apart was that was probably at the beginning. And I remember shortly thereafter, I get a, a text. And I think it was from Rachel, I can't remember at this moment, but it was Victor asked which victim, and he named off multiple victims, and not one of them were me. And I just, I really honestly felt like my world caved in because I had it in my mind that I was the only one. And something that I think every victim carries some measure of guilt is that I, to this day, am the oldest victim. Um, Like I know Victor had just started working there and I wouldn't be surprised if there was more, but nobody else has come forward. And so you're watching as the first victim, like victim after victim after victim over, you know, almost 20 years just come forward and you're, you, it's, it's devastating. And so I was like, well, better go to the police. I went to the police. They're like, sorry, nothing we can do. And then Rachel stepped up and like, you know, Victor confessed um, mm-hmm. to me in there and we were able to get charges and, you know, all that came out and, you know, and through all of that, you know, like with the church, I remember thinking, you know, like watching this unfold, it's almost an out-of-body experience. You, you're, you're trying to process this as it's hitting you one thing after another. And you think, oh, the church, now that they have this evidence, like there's this stuff and you would hear like from the pulpit saying things like there was no sex involved. And I'm like, but my dad, told, but my dad told you, like, how could you say that? Um, Bruce Goddard came to my parents um, shortly after things went public and it was at Memorial Day. My dad accidentally told Bruce Goddard that I was going to the police and Bruce Goddard just, and so this is Memorial Day of the following year after November. I don't know how many months that is, but that's a lot. And Bruce Goddard came to my parents' house that night and then came to my parents' house again with the pastor's wife. And Bruce Goddard told my parents, he you know, my parents are trying to process all this. And Bruce Gutter told them, he said, you know, it's going to come down to you. You're going to have to choose your daughter or you're going to have to choose between your daughter and the church. And my mom told me she just couldn't process that. Like she was trying to think like he must mean something different. And he, he would go to my, he would go to my parents privately and then go to my sister. He was just trying to keep everybody isolated. Um, and like one of the things my parents had told him was, you know, you cannot tell Victor this, this is an ongoing investigation. Like, um, you know, April has a very slim case and this is when he came to them and told them that 
they had to choose. And they say, you can't tell Victor, you know, and then I get a message. I find out through, you know, everybody knows everything, everybody in the IFB, everybody's connected that Victor knew and found out later that literally the next day, Bruce Goddard went to Victor and told him everything. And those things you're trying to process this, like, this is somebody I grew up with. Like, this is somebody, you know, and that was constantly a feeling for me. Like, you know, me, like I, I never got in trouble. I never lied. I, I was like your poster IFB child. Like I never addressed infraction. I wore those long dresses. I showed up at every solening. Why don't you believe me? So I had reached out to David Gibbs III um, and his um, you know, initial thing is like, where do you want to take this? And this is something, again, where people just assume you walk into this and you're out to get the church. And my first thing I told Gibbs, it was like, I don't want to, you know, cause any problems. I don't want to bring in, I don't want to do anything to hurt the church. I just want accountability. And so he had messaged that to Bruce Goddard and said, Hey, April doesn't want to cause any issues with the church. I still have that text message. Um, And all she wants is, you know, some accountability, you know, she just wants the top. And so um, Gibbs had told us that we were going to have this round table. So still within the church, um, we're going to have this round table talk is what he called it. And I was to bring my pastor as my representative and um, Bruce Goddard could bring whoever he wants. And we would just talk. And Gibbs asked me to write down three things I wanted to bring to Bruce Goddard. And I said, I just want um, to announce it to the church. I said, because there's probably more victims. So just so they know. better policies and procedures. And just, um, I want you to come with me to the police. And I never got to say that because Bruce Goddard refused to talk. And I remember that was the part I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I just, I was crying like dry heaving crying because this was my family. And you, these are people I knew my whole entire life. Like I wasn't asking anything Like I wasn't asking anything. I just wanted accountability. I wanted to talk about how we can make the church a safer place. And that was very clearly stated. And still it was, you know, no, we don't want to talk. And so at that point, it just, you kind of just started watching every, my world began to crumble. I I also, I, I had told my sister, I said, you know, everything's a mess, like all, because then people start coming forward and start telling. And I I look back now that I had this very privileged position in the church. I was like a good kid. I never caused any problems. I'm white. I'm straight. Like all these things, I just aligned to be a very privileged position in the church. And then people are coming forward and telling me things like this happened to me and this happened to me. And -and so-and-so did this to me. And all these people that I just thought were good people turned out to be very horrible people. And it just, I just, it just kept on coming at me. And um, I I remember telling my sister, I said, at least my experience in the school was good. There was not one bad thing that happened in the school. And that didn't last long. That came down yeah. too. But in my world, I was just watching my world crumble in front of me. Right. And that you was- prepped yourself for people not believing you. And then mm-hmm. it went from that to, oh, well, Goddard definitely knows and believes this. It's just, he doesn't care. Like that's yeah. a, so like, it's almost like you spent all those years preparing for one trauma to be hit with another one 
yeah. that was probably work. Like, cause I would have to imagine it would almost feel better to go like, okay, they just don't believe this. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame them because I wouldn't have believed this either. But it's like when you've got your pastor who you literally grew up spending the night at the house, you know, with with his kids and your friends and you're in the school, like then to have him know the truth and not do anything has to be devastating. Like that's that's a whole nother layer because that's a layer of betrayal on top of everything else. Yeah, I kind of like it's call it like the second trauma because yeah. the first trauma was the actual sexual abuse. The second trauma was the people who should have stood by you mm-hmm. that came out just turning their back. And one thing too, is like <sighs> the way people act to, I think I was texting you about this, but there was like this, this thing, the good girl versus the bad girl. And people will look and say, Oh, that's a bad girl because of how she dresses, how she acts. And they'll treat that person like she deserved it. And Mm -hmm. people will say, well, like, if you're a good girl, then these things don't happen to you. And here I'm thinking, well, I did everything right. I'm the good girl. But the thing is, that is a concept that is moot. Because once that thing happened to you, you are no longer the good girl. Well, you must have done something then. Because good girls don't have things happen to them. And so it's this boundary that just gets moved further down. And I'm having people that like I babysat their kids just, and for me, it was different. Like people would, they treated us victims differently. I basically got ghosted. I, nobody said anything to me. And that was, I I almost felt like I could handle anger. I could handle if somebody lashed out at me, but nobody would say anything to me. Like there's something to do with anger. There's not something to do with nothing. I could be angry at anger. I could be hurt, but <laughs> right. silence. I didn't know what to do with the silence. And there would be, I, there was somebody who, again, I babysat for very close to a teen worker and um, she had gone to my parents and my mom said she was on her, her knees, bawling her eyes out saying, please forgive me. I, and that happened a lot. Like people would say, I saw these signs and I missed them. And, and that was something in the church. Bruce Gutter was putting the guilt onto the congregation Like, you know, if we had seen something, we would have done something, right? Mm. Like it wasn't the church's leadership's responsibility. You should have done something. So if nothing was done, where does that blame lie? And so she had come to my mom just bawling, saying, if I would have seen something, I would have done something. Please forgive me. And the odd thing was that apology never came to me. It went to my parents. But I was like, okay, like I took it for what it was. And I reached out to the investigator and said, this person that they saw stuff and Mm. they never spoke up. They wouldn't. And that was something too, where people say, if I would have, I, if I had seen it, I would have done something. And I'm like, well, but today I need your help. And they would refuse to do it. And so it was just a constant, like, you know, you're being hit with these things you're being hit with, you know, there's two sides to every story. Like, and I just want to be believed. I want that what I say to be taken not as something that needs to be worked through, you know, like, see, if I'm really telling the truth, like, I'm your friend, like, you should believe me. And Mm -hmm. at that same time, I'm going to a church, I'm trying to figure out life, church and everything. And the church I was at, you know, it was the same there. I was going to counseling with the pastor. And it was just these bizarre statements. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I need somebody to 
believe me, but not also believe me, but to understand me. And it was always, well, you better not be bitter. You know, you better not be angry or just really bizarre. I was told the pastor told me I had brought up something and he's like, well, you need to be careful about how much you say. He's like, because you have a target on your back now. And now that you're known as a sexual abuse victim, you know, people are going to assume that you're coming after the church and you're just like trying to deal with this all at the same time that you have a criminal case going on. Um, everybody has an opinion on what you should do. Right. Should you do, you know, like there was people that understood the criminal case, like, okay, she's pressing charges, but never spoke to me after I brought the civil lawsuit mm-hmm. because they felt like I was going after the church and there was all this stuff going on. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a, the busy, crazy five years. That's for right. sure. Well, it, be, before we talk about now, like what is Bruce Goddard's, I mean, I guess, I guess this will be the question that we ask forever. What is he thinking? Like, like when it comes to these cases, because again, when I look at these, I always go, there's like the moral thing, you know, which is like, I've noticed with a lot of these churches, you're not going to win on the moral argument of like what should be done. But then it's like the baseline, whatever you want to call it, PR, you know, like he had the opportunity to at least sit down and do damage control and say in a very corporate way, which I don't think is the moral way to do it, but in a very corporate way, say, you know, how were you affected? Here's what we'll do to settle this and then go on with what we're doing. It's like, I just, I look at Goddard who has just clumsily handled all of these situations in, in ways where clumsy in ways that it hurt survivors, obviously numerous times, and then clumsy in ways where he just does stupid things that put him in a worse position than if he had stamped this out earlier. Like, why do you think he's making the decisions that he does as far as like, cause it doesn't even feel like he's protecting the church. It just feels like he's so sporadic in how he does this stuff. Yeah, I, that is hard to, I guess you'd have to be the person to know. I do know that when. No, thanks on that one. I'll I'll, uh, skip that. I know. Like, no, thanks. I'll pass. Um, I do know that in the beginning, like when everything very first came out, my dad went to him again. My dad's like the eternal optimist. And he kept on going to him. Like, I think again, like if you just understand this, then. I think our dads would get along. about it uh, like did you you it, you know you didn't do enough and I'm like my family it was over and over going asking trying to work things out but my dad did tell him he said you know at work and set stuff I've had experience where there's been PR disasters you know like where he's like the way you need to handle it is face it head on talk to the people so I know And this was at that time, as the chairman of the deacon board, my dad's giving this advice. And all Bruce Scotter did, he asked my dad to step down from the chairman of the deacon board. Um, And so you're, you're looking like he's getting this advice, like you need to handle this, like people are hurting, they're wanting the the church is wanting to, they're waiting for the pastor to say something. And it was just, I don't know, I don't know if I know, for Bruce Goddard, and having grown up image is everything for Bruce Goddard, like how he appears. And so I don't know if it was image, like he just, just didn't want that. He is also a master of avoidance. Like he does not, 
I don't think anybody has talked to him. Like he'll always have somebody else talk for him. Um, so I don't know if he just thought like, if I put my head in the sand, it's going to go away. Or if he just thought if I don't even want this to appear like this, if I don't even want to acknowledge it's here because if I don't acknowledge it's here, then I can pretend I have this perfect image. I don't know, because like you said, a lot of it doesn't make sense. And that's where I was when it was going on. It, to me, it just did not make sense. Like if you would just say like, hey, if there's more victims, you know, please go to the police. Like everybody in IFB, the bar is set so low. Like all you have to do is say, we stand by victims and everybody worships you and think you should write a book. Um, so yeah, like the bar is set so low. Like that's all you have to do. Like, I don't know why he just, he wouldn't even do the bare minimum, but he didn't. And that's probably the reason where, why he is where he is at this time with lawsuits and all that other stuff. What pastor has done the bare minimum and written a book? um anyway um we get uh, someday before we die we'll do like one last episode and we'll just share everything we really think um so you have all the people in the church that are ghosting you you have people i'm sure that were a mix up just didn't want to deal with it which is probably a, a lot of people in the church you have people that are just believe it's an attack from you and that you're you know you went off in your own way and you're trying to tear down the church You've got people that are just denying that this could have happened or, you know, there's a variety of people, but it's all leading to the same result, which is you have no support system from the church. Fast forward to him going behind bars, getting sentenced, and there being this final decision that like, I was telling the truth, like, this is the truth. The expectation then is like, all these people I grew up with are going to now circle around me and say, we're so sorry, we were wrong. Now I have a support system but that wasn't really what happened. So tell me what happened at that point when it's like the truth has come out after years and years of just struggle and frustration and anxiety. Here we go. We have a verdict. What, what did you expect to happen at that point? And then what did happen at that point? Well, I remember on the day we went to the courthouse um, and seeing that there was people that were on the court, you know, split into there was our our side and then the defendants, Victor Montero's side. Um, and there was actual people sitting over there and people from Faith Baptist Church. And you just think, like, when does it end? Like yeah. when at, at what point, how much do I have to do? How much do I have to say for somebody to believe me? And then you know, you get the guilty verdict, you think, like you said, okay, now the whole the whole American justice like system, you know, innocent until proven guilty. I have been proven um, innocent. He's been proven guilty. I've been proven truthful in a court of law. But what I find is that in IFB and probably these institutions, the, the goalposts then just gets moved, you know, Oh, the justice system isn't infallible, you know, like they make mistakes Um, or you hear things like, well, you know, what more do these girls want? They got their justice. Now they're after the church in this way. And it just, it's not, it's never enough. The goalposts will be moved to a new position where um, it's like, well, look, you destroyed a family for something that happened years ago. Like you'll never come out on the right side. And that took me a very long time. I, 
I can't even say I figured it out then. I wouldn't say it was in t- well into our civil, um, the lawsuit, where I actually listened to these people do depositions. And that's what it was. It was, they would ask something like, you know, has, you know, desc- can you describe April to me? And there was, there was one man who I, I literally babysat his kids. I, he was our, lived in our neighborhood. I knew him and he said, I don't know who April is. And I'm thinking, wait, what? How could you say you don't know me? And, or there was other people that I had grown up with that I had grown up with their kids. I grow up and they would ask like, tell me what April was like as a, you know, a student in the school or a child. And I was always the same. Oh, she was obedient. She was good. Well, do you think she's telling the truth? No, but you said she never lied here. And it was just this complete disconnect where I realized that nothing I could do could convince these people. If they've already convinced themselves in their head that this is an attack on the church, that there no amount of evidence you could bring. And some of these people were shown the evidence, like it's put right in front of them and they'll say, nope, I don't believe it. And that's when it began to click for me. And this was several years after the, um, the criminal trial that I realized there, there's nothing I can do. Like I, I could wear I could put billboards up. I could show them everything and they have decided already the position they're going to take. And that is that their church, that building, and people even said it, like they called my parents, you know, like, we're going to lose everything in this. Like, can you, can you talk to your daughter? You know, like, this is horrible. And my dad's like, you're calling me (laughs) like my child's a victim and you're asking me to protect the church. You know, it was about the church. It was about the building. But how many parents make that decision though? You know, like that's the thing is you can look at it. Yeah. I saw parents make that decision of victims of Victor. And, and that I am again, very, uh, I don't like to use the word blessed. I don't know what the word would be. I'm so happy that, that my parents, (laughs) you know, I could have, that could have been me very easily. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that you have to look at too, is like, you look at how Bruce handles that and he obviously learned from people before him and you had Victor learning from people before him. It's like, these guys did stuff that they knew worked. So like Mm -hmm. Bruce going and saying, make a decision between your daughter and the church. He knew nine times out of 10, that's an easy, they're going to choose the church. And it's the people that actually don't (laughs) that end up helping move these things along. And I think yeah. it is. It's really incredible that. Well, and I feel like that's why we, that, you know. the lawsuit was settled in our favor because it was such a clear pattern yeah. of yeah. years of how things were handled in the church. Like it wasn't something where they say, oh, this could have just happened one time. It was story after story of the I mean, we were even told even how Victor did things like somebody told us that Victor was so dumb that in any other institution, he would have been caught right away because he did the same thing over and over and over. So the patterns were very clear how Bruce Goddard handled it. The patterns were so clear, but but the system was built to help them. Yeah. The system was built to help them. Um, But it, it it worked like, I don't know for all those years, 35 years. Yeah. And that was also made pretty clear that I don't think he expected. I honestly, I don't think it's because he cared about me or about my family that he was shocked 
I don't think it was that. I just don't think he ever expected somebody, especially somebody who'd been in the church for so long and was so involved and so connected that they would actually say, no, like we're pursuing charges. We're doing this. Like, this is what needs to happen. Like, I don't think that was ever expected because again, it had worked all those years and he had gotten away with stuff. With the criminal side done, the civil side done. Um, like those are two big, amazing things to, you know, finally come to a conclusion. You know, I want to talk about now, like speaking up because like, you've been very vocal, like you've done interviews for magazines, like you've been in the press. Some of that probably just happened. It wasn't a, a choice to be featured the way that you were. Um, you know, now you have a, docu-series that you're in sharing your story, like, um, which feels weird. I feel like I'm not supposed to be saying it now because as of this recording, it hasn't been announced, but you have all these things now that are like opportunities to share. And I guess I just want to hear from you, like, it would be totally justified to get done with all of the, I mean, all of the re-traumatization of just going through the court system twice, you know, to just say, that's done. I don't ever want to even think about any of this again. You know, I want to separate myself from it. Like what has given you the kind of urge to continue to share your story and to kind of help on the side of, I mean, advocacy, whatever you want to call it, to be sharing that story and letting people know like this happened and this continues to happen to people like me all the time. One thing personally, um, I remember I had a conversation with my dad and we were talking about stuff and he said something like, hopefully get it right. Something like, well, I never told you that you couldn't do this. I think it was college. That's what it was. Like I, I was saying that, like, I thought Hiles Anderson was the only choice. And my dad said, well, I never told you that it was the only choice. And I said, but in the environment that I grew up in, that was the only choice given. And for me, whether it was abuse or I just had no outside, nobody was telling me that things could be different. And I, I, I look back as a teenager and maybe I would have heard it. Maybe I wouldn't have. Um, I remember when we were filming the documentary and we were doing the, we were holding our signs in front of Faith Baptist and I could see these teenagers in their long dresses and their shirts and ties getting ready to go for Saturday soul winning and how some people were very just visibly some were being you know obnoxious but some of them were uncomfortable because they didn't understand what was going on outside the gates like what who's who's making all this ruckus outside our church like are those people bad people are they going to try to hurt like they didn't know what was going on but I saw that was me I didn't know. I had no understanding of anything outside those church gates. And if somebody, if I could have heard something, just that knowing that I had options possibly could have changed so much for me. And so I just hope that like, just by talking, just by putting it out there, you're just putting out one more story that maybe somebody will connect with. Maybe there's somebody in that grew up and they suing a church or bringing a lawsuit is the furthest thing from their mind. Like they actually care about the church. They care about the people from the church. They really genuinely love this world that they're living in, but something so wrong is happening. That was me. And, and they think, well, if I, if I say anything, will I be going against the church? Will I be 
doing all these things that hurt people. And so they end up like me protecting, not just they think they're protecting the church or whatever, but all they're doing unknowingly is protecting this harm. And if I am hurting themselves and it, it harms themselves at their expense, they're protecting, you know, something that's not their job to protect. And if I could just be one more story out there, you know, I, I see it as we're building this, this bigger and bigger, every story that gets put in is a bigger, broader, more clear view of what this world or this IFB world, this abusive institution is, which means maybe that one more voice can help one more person. And maybe I'll be able to connect to somebody that might not connect to other people, other people's stories. So that is definitely the main thing for me. Also, I live under the shadow of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. I live right next door to it. They knock on my door. I have just a couple of weeks ago had somebody inviting me to the church. And, you know, as long as these institutions are intact, I see it as there's still a harm that's actively happening. Because like we kind of said before, these institutions are, they exist in a way that allow harm to happen. And so as long as people are going and supporting these institutions, um, Faith Baptist Church still exists. I see it as that there's a still a possibility of harm to happen. And so I feel like, you know, knowledge is power. And the more stories that are out there, the more these stories hit a wider audience, hopefully, like with the documentary. I'm so excited. Um, and all no, that's weird even talking about it, like with a no, camera on, because it feels like illegal. Because <laughs> as of until like two days from now, it kind of is because we signed NDAs. But, um, yeah. but, but, but that wider audience, I just hope that the more that this gets put out there, the more people see it for what it is. And I don't think it's going to disappear tomorrow. No. But if it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, I, I see it as less harm being able to happen. No, that generation of people. And I love that you mentioned the teenage, because one thing I'll say too, when we were protesting at faith um, made eye contact with Bruce Goddard, who stared, it was very cool. Uh, but one of the things too, is that, you saw the ghosting happen. Like as someone, like I knew faith. I mean, we played basketball and football against faith, like, and never liked them as a school. Cause they were like, they're like the punks from faith. And like, there was all this stuff. And, um, and so like, I was very familiar, but like, I had never, like, I don't think I'd ever been by the campus. And then to see, to be standing with you and Kathy and Rachel and seeing people that, you guys were saying, oh, that's so-and-so, oh, that's so-and-so. And then seeing those people walk by and not even like acknowledge that you're there was such a like jarring experience, like mm-hmm. to see that. And then on the flip side, like it was a reminder of like, those people probably will never change their mind, like you said. But then you see the teenagers coming in and you go, if they can change or if they can, you know, if they can see it, like that next generation is the stopping point where it's like that older generation is going to die off. They're going to go out. They're going to, you know, it's going to be gone in another couple of years. Mm-hmm. What do we do for the people in the pews? You know, not the leadership. Like what about the people that have never thought to question? So um, 
Yeah, I wanted to throw that in. I think that's an important thing to remember is like, if you're trying to change the Bruce Cottage of the world, it's going to be frustrating. If you're trying to change the people in the pew, you might have a little bit more more success doing that. Um, but I'm definitely somebody, I don't know if you see it as, I don't know, the way my mind works is I very, I, tr- I think I'm just very realistic sometimes. And as much as I would like that our lawsuit would have, you know, they would have handed us the key to Faith Baptist and said, it's officially, you know, you can lock the gate, it's done. I knew that that probably wasn't going to happen. In the beginning, I thought it could happen, but I realized, you know, it's not as simple as just putting a story out there. These places exist. And sometimes they close down one place and move to somewhere else. But um, I think of it like sometimes, like if you ever watch like California fires, like sometimes there's these massive fires and they don't even have the ability to put out that fire, but they'll put like a ring around it and the fire will just burn itself out. Like you're not always going to have the ability to put out the fire today, but you can start putting, you know, like cutting off the resources to that place. And the more that people know about it, like they'll hear I, one of the my most favorite stories I heard is somebody they said um, they not um, somebody knocked on their door. It was a stranger, and it was their neighbor, or whatever. But they the neighbor told them that this person knocked on the door and handed them a track for Faith Baptist. And the person said, "Oh, weren't you on the news? Like I would never go to that church." And that's how I see it. Like hmm. we're not gonna everybody who's in the church, like you said, at this point is probably just going to be there. They've chosen that. They've chosen that. They made that choice. But, you know, if we can put the information out that keeps people from unknowingly, like my parents, thinking this is a good place, a safe place, then little by little, you know, the resources will dry up or, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I I feel like it's a long game, but it's one that I'm willing to be here for. So and I think I do am optimistic that sometime down the road, either the children will grow up and see it for what it is and move away. And then you're not adding to the church or, you know, people will stop coming. And I'm optimistic for that. I think that will happen someday. Yeah, Love that. Uh, well, last question. And I want to just get this on the record just, uh, just to see, because I think it would be interesting. Neither of us have seen this docuseries yet. What are you most hopeful gets across from your part in this series? And what's your biggest fear, I guess, with this series coming out? What I hope is that people just see the magnitude of it. I understand that IFB is not this massively mainstream, like it's not what people think of if they're going to rattle off the top five denominations or something, but that it is an actual force that it's out there. It's in our political system. It's, um, it's, it is more mainstream than people realize. And I think that was something we've seen with, a couple of documentaries that have come out that people are shocked at how um, prevalent, <laughs> prevailing, is that the right word? Prevalent. Prevalent. Thank you. It is in our culture that it is in a lot, lot more places than people think. And so that is one thing I hope that people see the magnitude of it, that they see the, the magnitude of harm that it is. It's not, oh, you know, people had a bad experience with church, that this is very active harm stuff that's happening today. It has been happening for a while. And so I hope that people 
understand that. Um, I do. One of the things I do sometimes have a hard time with is, you know, they call it like trauma porn. Like that's, that is something I don't want. I don't want people to just watch this and say, Oh, that makes me feel gross. Or I, and I understand, you know, people will do that, but I hope that people, that's not the the only thing they're going to take away from it. I hope that they see it as these are real people. Um, These are real situations that have happened that have affected people's lives um, and like affected generations of people's lives. And, you know, that maybe that will, honestly, I, again, like I said, I hope this sparks change. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe with somebody like some of these places, maybe a victim, like, you know, with first Baptist church, nothing has been able to be done. Well, maybe the right victim will come forward because they're inspired by this to speak out now. Yeah. I don't want to say, I don't know if right victim is, you know, I mean more like the right place, right place, time. Like yeah. this, this will be the one that, you know, is able to shed even more light. Right. And I think that that is what I hope. Um, and not just for first Baptist church, but for all these churches that are being featured in the documentary, um, yeah. because we know there's more out there. So yeah. I hope they, then we'll maybe hear about this, maybe something they pushed down all these years. And then they'll see this documentary and think, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say something, I'm going to come forward. So. Right. Yeah. That was definitely our biggest fear when Sharon first reached out was like, is the director of the doc when she reached out and Sam and we got on those initial calls, but I think it was like 2020, I think it was like end of 2020 or 2021. And like, that was a lot of the conversations was like, how are you going to approach it? What are you going to do? Cause I do think I'm not big on the true crime. I know I'm technically true crime adjacent. Like, I think that's the category of this show and, you know, but I just, I don't get on board with like the, like you said, the trauma porn approach where like people just watch it and they, they forget the humanity of the people involved. And that's one thing I feel very confident about is like, from conversation with Sharon and Sam and spending time and being in a group all together is like, I feel like there's a very big sensitivity to that um, where that humanity is remembered first. And then it's like, then there's the story, which obviously the story is gritty and there's detail to it. But like, I just think, I I don't know. I, I think when you show somebody for who they are and then you talk about what happened to them, you don't have to resort to like all including in graphic detail, all of these terrifying elements layered under it. Like, like even with this show, like, I feel like, I don't know, like, it's almost like I don't want to spend a lot of time pushing into that because it makes me feel like you get it. People get it. Like, what can we say the least amount of to get the story across? And then like, let's talk about the emotion of coming forward. Like, cause that's the part that gets left on the table so much is like all of that, which is so much, you know, that five-year span of going through the court system, like there's so much in that, that just doesn't make the tabloids, doesn't hit the newspaper. That's like, people should consider that. Like, what if that was your daughter or your friend or the people that's are babysitting your kids? Like try to think of it in that terms. I think it changes the whole perspective, but um, I'm, I'm really excited to see how it all comes together. And I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm just the more people, like, I know we kind of joked, before like um you know i know you at this point and like we've had so many conversations and like i just 
I feel honored to know so many people that are sharing their stories in this way and are just really cool people. Like I've met, I mean, you and Rachel and Kathy and like, I mean, just from faith alone, like from faith alone, uh, (laughs) from faith alone is like, it's such a cool group of people that I've been able to connect with. And uh, I'm just really proud of everybody like for sharing this way. And, and I appreciate you doing this. And I know we could probably talk for another like three hours. I'm sure we will over the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I told some, I told uh, Rachel the other day, I was like, I'm going to be so annoying once that gets announced. Cause I'm going to be posting about it all the time. Um, I'm going to put myself on the t-shirt. Hopefully. <laughs> just <laughs> have, you. have you seen just, this? Like, I'm just going to let you know. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really proud of everything. And and just from, you know, just knowing the people involved, I'm really excited to see more of it because I, I like all the people involved, which well, makes it a lot I, easier. That's that's good too. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same. Like, I mean, I got to meet people because of this documentary that I had heard of and then hadn't really connected with. And then when we were able to connect, we're like, oh, like you said, really, really cool people. And everybody, that was a worry for me, um, when the documentary, like when it was put out there, because there have been um, other people that had put out, like they were doing a documentary. <laughs> just kidding. That was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, no, but I would have trusted you. But there was other people, and I just people that reached out to me too. I had people hit me yeah, up all the time saying, "Yeah, sure about it." Like I would hear things they would say, and it felt very sensationalized. And I wanted to be both Rachel and I, when we first flew out for filming, we were both very nervous. And I remember after we had done our initial interview, we got done and we're like, this is legit. And it's, it's good. Like this doesn't feel like it is something that is just for the shock value. Like they Mm want to actually, the questions they asked, um, how they filmed the respect they had, the whole film crew was so respectful and so kind. And if they saw like you were, you know, if there was the emotions were getting too much or anything, they were very respectful of that. And at that point you were like, this is, this is going to be good. I think, I think it's going to be amazing. But, and then on top of that, I had watched some of her other work and how she just, how she, I think the producer Sharon is so good about letting people tell their stories and making the, the voices of the people she's interviewing the main story. And once I heard like once I I saw some of the other stuff she did and how they filmed, I thought this is I think it's going to be pretty epic. So yeah, I'll have to do yeah. a live watch party or something. I know. Yeah, like I said, I'm going to be very annoying when this comes out, and I'm I'm excited because like it is um like you mentioned, you know, I that was my initial plan was like I want to do something like that flooded with stories. You're like, okay, I'll do it. Like I I don't envy what they're doing right now, cutting all of this down <laughs> into a four episode what? series. Um. But it is really cool. Sharon actually mentioned, um, because she knew like that was originally my only goal was like, I want to do that. And then the podcast kind of happened as like a happy accident out of that. Um, but she she I forget, I forget if she said it when we were at dinner. Yeah, it was we were at dinner. I don't know. Were you at dinner with us when we did that? Oh no, 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 you weren't. We were in um it was in Kansas City. We were filming different days. But we went to dinner and she's like, it's kind of cool because she's like it didn't happen the way you thought, but there's a documentary about this and there's people connect. And I was like, it is, it's just super cool. Like how 
in, in a past life, I would have said it feels providential the way everything has really come together. But uh, I don't know how to explain I, it now. I think it still is in a lot of ways, you know. Well, that's something I will absolutely say is things that I never could have imagined have happened and how I thought it was going to happen didn't. And everything, the timing, like you look back now, the timing couldn't mm-hmm. be more perfect. On yeah. like, like you said, like if I would have looked at if 10 years ago, I would have been like, you know, God's hand on this. And I, I don't know what I would say now, but like exactly the wording I would use, but it is absolutely amazing how things have just lined up and the right people at the right time have come forward and like proposed, you know, whether it was Sarah with the Fort Worth news, um, the bomb that she dropped. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was all these things. And it just, it was meant to be. That's how I feel. Absolutely. It was meant to be. So super excited. And it's been a crazy ride, but it's been worth it. Absolutely worth it. And all the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Right. Well, send me an April t-shirt. I'll happily wear one and um, we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much for doing this finally. Um, And just for people that are listening, like we literally, when we met in Wildemar, because that's the first time we ever met in person. And I was like, oh, and you, you know, Rachel's been on, obviously you've been on, Kathy's been on like, yeah. And then you were like, I've never been on, but it's because we had, I mean, we'd been yeah. in so many group chats and conversations and things. So I'm glad you're finally officially on. Yeah, I can take um, group photo. So. And uh, yeah, we got to do get to be in the group photo. And um, thank you so much for doing this. For anybody who's listening to this, be sure to check the link in the show notes for info about where you can find more of April's story um, cool. and any links to anything we've talked about in the episode. But April, thank you so much for joining me and uh, making it official. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.